Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Failure Understanding Care and Kunst podcast. My name is James, and with me today is Ruth Aitken. Hello. Today, we're bringing you an interview with Marius Moldvar, an artist from Oslo. We were meant to meet up with Marius Moldvar in Oslo when we were there in July. However, he got COVID, so we needed to postpone and we met up with him on Skype in September for a conversation about his practice and about his theoretical and philosophical approach to failure. I hope you enjoy the podcast. You're just seeing kind of like the dressed up part of my studio. This is kind of what the digital has given us. It's kind of like you have all these fake backgrounds and it's just like, I'm on a beach. And it's just like, it doesn't look like you're on a beach. And you're kind of like pixelated, but okay, I guess you're on a beach. And it's just like, don't you think that like the wonders of the, well, I mean, the the novelty uh, or the novel feeling of like Zoom calls and everything disappeared quite quickly. It was just like everyone became this kind of like strange voyeurist. This is like, oh my God, I wonder what people have in their apartment. Uh, and all the fails, like, oh, people don't have on pants. Like, why does that woman have a dildo in the back while she's having her lecture? And it's just like, but now it's kind of just like everyone is kind of like the, the kind of that novel feeling of just being in someone's home in a professional manner and then not being like a police or kind of like, I don't know, social services coming to visit. That has completely disappeared. But then still, I don't know if we began like curating our home into some tiny little squares, I think. Because if I kind of like had turned around, probably going to be a bit, then you're kind of like, oh, oh. And then it's just like, I could like, and if you see down there and everywhere, it's kind of like you see that like, this is obviously a hoarder. But you can't see that I'm a hoarder when I just sit here and it's just like, you know, I have this really simple practice where I just work on one thing. Uh, and that's what I do, complete concentration. And the truth is that I just kind of collect things like some crazy person uh, without actually any kind of goal to what I'm doing, which is did, weird. Did you, during the pandemic, did you have any digital... So Zoom or Skype studio visits with anyone? Because I think that would be quite interesting because you could present a certain aspect of your practice. You could present an, an incredibly coherent practice and an efficient practice and hide all the really bad artworks you made under your table yeah. and nobody would know. I think, so. I think also you could have been like 10 different artists during the pandemic in every kind of way it's just like every new practice it's just like 
oh, well, I haven't met you before. It would be interesting to be kind of like different artists within the same person coming to visit. If you were able to pull that off, like some kind of weird art Ponzi scheme. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I have like a, a new sort of curtain or theater curtain across the back and <laughs> a new wig and a new uh, get out the paint instead of put the sewing machine away <laughs> yeah it's just like no I'm a sculptor uh, I work with marble it's just like have you worked with marble before no but I can say I work with marble it's fine it's no problem at all uh, I think kind of like the simulation of a world is complete during the pandemic. Mm. Uh, everything has just become one huge simulation and everyone's just like, you know what? It's fine. It's fine. The simulation is fine. We don't care anymore. Well, it's just this, we this, realize. Yeah. This was one of the, this was supposed to be the very seductive thing about the internet, right? One could play with identity and especially with this idea that you could have a whole entire other life online and normally it's quite evil it's people having affairs or it's people uh i don't know catfishing someone but this feels like an innocent prank to play on curators (laughs) (laughs) and who deserves it more (laughs) oh that is true i remember what was it somebody i was talking to a colleague of mine where they were like where we were kind of like shit talking this kind of like well, artists have to rise up because you have all the power. You're the ones who are making the art. And I was just like, well, I mean, that's not really true, though. It's just like we make the art, but we don't have any true power. It's just if we stop making art, I mean, of course, that would be a problem. Like, personally, I would see that as a huge cultural problem. But it would have to kind of like all the artists in all the world would have to stop making art. Uh, I would have to kind of like finish up all the art that already exists and everything. I don't know this kind of like idea of the makers of the artwork having all the power. It's just like, I feel it's something that we are given and, but that, that we can't really use. It's like, I don't know. It's kind of like, what was that film again? Uh, the Japanese film where like a bunch of kids are dropped on the island and everyone gets That's their weapon. Own. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And you're kind of like, and hopefully, I mean, like, well, I'm not going to spoil this for anyone if they haven't seen Battle Royale, but the one that gets kind of like the lid for the pan wins. And I feel it kind of like maybe artists were dropped on this world and we have that lid. Uh, And by God, we're making some amazing stuff with this lid. I mean, like, I would like to see anyone else making the stuff we do with this bloody lid. But in a survivalist <clears throat> aspect, the lid is quite useless. Hopefully, I hope I hope we will win at the end. <laughs> now I'm painting the I world mean, to be a battle royale place. But I mean, it's I really nice. It's up. really nice up here in Tromso. You should you should try it. I mean, I've not had to chop any child's. Yeah, not for not for a while. <laughs> Honestly, not for a while. What happens once you hit Muiran then, a little bit further south, you really start having to beat them off with... uh... (laughs) Yeah, we we must really be protected. I always hear that the north gets more money in in Norway. Uh, The north gets more money than the south. And maybe that's because we get more money. We've still not descended into... Wild slaughter. Yeah. 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 Maybe you could could introduce yourself... uh, 
uh, Marius, and you could tell us a little bit about your practice. Yes, thank you very <laughs> much for having me. <clears throat> it's always an awkward moment when one is presenting oneself, I feel, and my practice. But, <clears throat> and I don't know, I never want to give the same spiel twice over. I had a wonderful class one time with the elevator pitch where I was like, grilled for like an hour it's just like you have two minutes you're in the elevator you met the person that is going to like blast off your career what do you say and i was just like well i guess i would start with hi uh or comment on the music or something like that which i just sensed that i was a really ineffective person in that manner that i used too many words as i've already had and have, haven't said a damn thing about myself but yes this is also part of my practice i guess because i'm a visual artist but then also a theorist uh, with a master in critical theory from Portland, Oregon. Uh, I'm a teacher um, and uh, sometimes curator uh, and also a writer. And when I say this, everyone's just like, well, that sounds like you're doing so many different things. And, I'm like, and that is true. Uh, it's, it can seem like a sporadic life in many ways. But for me, at I think this is also a realization I came to not that long ago that these divisions that I once placed within my practice, I have kind of dissolved because it became this thing where I'm like, well, I have to use 15 minutes of writing today and I have to be put on this hat and put on that hat to be able to do all the things I want to do. But then I realized, well, all of these things are a part of my practice, my creative practice, one could call it. but I think you could just as easily call it my job. For me, kind of like teaching is a creative practice. Uh, I, of course, I'm very lucky to teach like theory and writing and uh, different subjects in art school. So it's, uh, it's a welcoming environment for more exp experimental forms of teaching. But for me, how I kind of, I was about to say attack, uh, no, <laughs> how I kind of like, handle the teaching and how I do it is to see it also as a creative endeavor in the same way that one makes art uh, or when I make art. And the same thing with writing. It is for me the same kind of concept as making art. Thus, um, like creating then this practice where all of these things intermingle. And of course, I'm prone to developing as everyone else and i work with a lot of textiles uh, but i also work with sculpture photography uh text-based work and uh sculptural work <clears throat> and it keeps changing because i don't know i wouldn't say that like the medium is the message but certain mediums carry certain messages better than others uh maybe for me working with kind of like this more well, in my visual practice, especially working with these ideas that are, well, I know, well, we have all these grand narratives and grand ideas that we live by. Who am I? What am I? What is history? How did everything change? There is this kind of like want in me to bring this down to a very subjective and intimate level uh, <clears throat> and to be able to kind of reframe these ideas into something more intimate that you can meet. And I think that's also why I work a lot with textiles, because in textiles, I also get this intimacy. 
because everyone has an intimate relationship to textiles. It's how we work, uh, or how we work, how we think, I believe. Uh, and then also intermingling this with all the other things, I can also challenge people. I can suddenly be very existential in something that you kind of relate to or that you feel some kind of recognition to. Uh, so that is uh, my my present thought about my own practice, so to say. No, I was I was just going to ask, like, how does? Well, maybe there's two questions here. Actually, firstly, is how teaching sort of shapes your practice, but then maybe more fundamentally, and a bigger question is how you how you take the theory or what you do with it for example um because you're somebody that, that moves around mediums quite a lot and different things is theory just another medium if you're talking about all these boundaries collapsing or is there still something really really important to theory as theory for you maybe just on an intellectual level that doesn't have anything to do with your art practice? Well, yes, just handling the first question. I would say that, I mean, teaching is just as much about learning in a way, because there is this continuous communication uh, between you and kind of like students. Uh, and there is this reawakening of actually having to communicate uh, some kind of knowledge. And then speaking well, from my point of view of it being a creative endeavor, I don't really rely on a pedagogy that gives the right answer or that believes that kind of like people should sit in a classroom and and kind of be taught the right question. Also, then working in theory, I mean, like, it's just a space where you can develop your own thoughts and your own reflection. So for me, it also becomes a way of reflecting over larger subjects. It becomes a way of me reflecting over how I how I kind of work with it. I'm sorry, I just lost my train of thought because I'm, I obviously had something to say there that kind of like slipped I, me past. I think this is my terrible technique as an interviewer because I asked two questions that are actually quite... I tried to roll them into one, thinking that it would make it an easier question to answer, but I think it actually made it maybe more of a difficult question to answer. Um, because I think I think related to the second point about theory um, was this idea of how you relate to that and how it maybe shapes your practice but then more fundamentally whether you see it as a division like some kind of outside force that shapes the practice because the way you started talking at the start very much that theory everything is collapsed in your practice so maybe you don't see any kind of division and it's just another kind of medium or creative uh, resource to use. Yeah, but I, I believe it is. I believe it is. I believe that 
Yes, it's uh, it's definitely for me a creative tool that I use. Well, I mean, also, well, hair can like make maybe a difference between is it a medium or is it a tool? Um, and I mean, and in that way too, it is collapsed in a way that it's as much a tool as a scissor or a needle. It just kind of like um, operates on a different level. And I think that's also very important in an educational practice, that it is not answers that are given, but there are tools that are given. Um, and it's not that I think that the better the tools, the better the artwork or the better the answer uh, in a way, but it's specifically how you choose to use your tool uh, and how you understand the needle or the theory. Uh, and that is kind of what can make you shape this creative practice. And that, I think, is also very important for anyone within the arts and anyone studying the arts. But I also believe that there is something that should be within kind of like even for younger people, like in high school, in kind of primary school. I believe that these ideas that we foster which has also been disproven through different things, that we have these right and wrong things, they become quite damaging for me. And that's also perhaps a part of the collapse. I think I answered the question, maybe. I mean, who knows? <laughs> I, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what what... I mean, you've, you you said you're teaching Donna Haraway and uh, uh, Deleuze. Is, uh, I mean, is this, what's the best way to put it? You said you hated Donna Haraway. Um, so I assume, I mean, how much, how much, how much of, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you hate her personally? Uh, <laughs> no. And I don't, I, well, I don't know. I've never met her, so time will show. Yeah. But uh, in terms of the theory you're teaching, um, I mean, is it, is it something you're developing? Meaning, is it, is it something you're picking and, and giving to the, the students? Or is this a course that has already been set that you're, that you're, that you're teaching? Sorry, Ruth, I think, has just died. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, she's a professional. I have really good software, actually. I, put, I pay quite a lot of money per month for this uh, noise reduction software that cool. I use. Well, actually, then it's a good use. Then the more noise, the better. That's also a good yeah. thing because the fan on my uh, machine is just going off as crazy. Oh, nice. uh, so, I mean... But I, but I think it's interesting. Well, I think it's an interesting thing. And also, uh, I mean, I use the word hate quite blatantly. And I mean, like, well, maybe in my professional opinion, I should probably say I, at some fundamental level, disagree with the way she writes and thinks. And the funny thing about actually Donna Haraway and Deleuze is that I was kind of like some... I was the substitute teacher today at a seminar, uh, which I think is funny. And I was kind of like given these readings by my colleague uh, who has the class uh, and we're great colleagues. And I kind of love working with her. 
but we are also very different. So when she kind of gave me this, I was just like, well, honestly, I really don't like Donna Haraway. It's just like, I don't get it. Uh, I mean, like, I don't get the point, and I mostly just disagree with her. Uh, and then we had also this discussion that, but it's fine, because I can read something that I wholeheartedly disagree with, because I see kind of like her thoughts are going somewhere, but at the same time, I'm like, no, I don't like this. And also, I think it's fine for the students to kind of like meet this person where they have kind of like struggled over this text by Donna Haraway, which is incredibly difficult as everything that comes out through this age. It's just like, because they are kind of like this post-structuralist, we're going to destroy language and the way we think. Uh, it's challenging to read. And then it must be quite interesting for the students, like getting through this text and trying to understand it. And then suddenly you have your seminar teacher coming up and saying, oh, well, you know, I don't really like this. <laughs> <laughs> you've wasted, yeah, you've wasted your time trying to read this. Uh, yeah. It's like, I don't get the point of this. And of course, I would say that everyone should try and read Donna Haraway because there are interesting thoughts there. I don't personally agree with them, uh, of course, but it's interesting also then to be able to be challenged. That's also why I'm, because I am kind of this person that flits between everything. So I will read things that I disagree with. I will kind of like, I will never be the person that only reads the things I agree with. I will always be the one who reads and listens to also the things that I disagree with. Uh, also, the things that I emotionally disagree with. Uh, so I think it's also important to, I mean, well, you're only getting half the picture if I'm only reading what I agree with. I could be like this self-affirming person. Uh, well, obviously, I have quite a lot of high thoughts about myself because I'm like, well, I disagree with that, so I'm just not going to read that. Um <laughs> uh, which I do, but then I also read it, I decide uh, that I disagree with it, uh, but I'm also at the same time going to be like, but there are thoughts there and ideas that are worth kind of like, uh, worth thinking over, but that doesn't mean you have to buy the whole cake, it's kind of like, it's fine. Mm. You can just eat kind of the cake decoration. Uh, <laughs> the cherry. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, another thing, and I think that's also quite important in theory that you have this kind of like disagreement and that we have also this agreement that it, it's fine to disagree and it's fine to find things uninteresting and irrelevant. Uh, but as I think as an, as artists, as people, we also have to kind of like be aware of what is happening around us. That being said, I was in, I was very interested in flat earthers here the other day. So I went into a rabbit hole where I went into the Norwegian Association of Flat Earthers on Facebook. I don't have an account, so luckily they can't see that I visited. Uh, but I mean, that was also quite interesting because that went very fast from like flat earth to lizard people. Because uh, it was just kind of like this clusterfuck of conspiracy theories. Fin finally, they, they they finally they found something that we can all agree on. You know. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> but I mean, like, but I was genuinely interested in flat Earth because I was like, I totally don't get it. 
I was just like, what's up with the magnetic poles? It's like, why can't we travel over there? What happens when we come to the end? How can you believe this? Uh, the problem with a lot of these conspiracy theories is that there are no kind of answers. And that's when you kind of, well, I'm calling it a conspiracy theory. I suggest you just say the people who believe that the Earth is flat. Uh, but it goes into these conspiracy theories because there are no answers to this. So, uh, but it's interesting to kind of like would be able to have a conversation then with a flat earther and try to understand where the logic lies beyond kind of like the state has lied to you. It is actually mm. flat. Yeah. Well, that's actually interesting. I was going to later come on to talk, like, or we will come back to it, talking about artistic failure and then also how you would define failure or think about failure and success. But I think there is something, yeah, interesting in what you were talking about before about uh, like theories that you disagree with. And I'm curious if you think you can have philosophical failure and whether that is a, is, whether that's p possible and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. And then, I'm, yeah, these conspiracy theories, I guess, could be in some sense thought of as being philosophical failures. But then maybe they're not philosophical failures, but failures of capacity to find evidence or backup. Uh, but uh, yeah, I guess, what are your thoughts about failure in that capacity? Or is it, again, is it maybe a failure of interpretation and again, can you ever be wrong? In the in the way, can you ever be wrong about how you feel about work of art? Can you be wrong in your interpretation of a philosophy, or can it be a failure? Because I think failure and wrong are two different things. Yeah. So I am maybe mm. muddling my talking about structuralism and <laughs> language. I'm really uh, fucking up here. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think you're. But I think that like, well, I think that's. I think that's why failure is also so fascinating because it is kind of like, it's a very easy term to start with. It's like you failed. Mm. It's like, because you were not able to, well, I guess, well, I actually haven't looked up the definition, which is quite strange, but, uh, but it's kind of like you failed at doing something you were setting out to do. Uh, and I think that, I think that flat earth fails the moment it kind of like goes off and says like well the state kind of like manufactured this image of this earth that is around it's like it's fake then it's kind of like well i mean then you're creating these strawman arguments it's kind of like that is kind of like well now you're not really trying to prove that you're right but you're trying just to say that everything else is a lie so disapproving everything else will automatically make your theory right and that's not really how the world works, uh, I would say. Because that's also, I think, the part of theory. I mean, like, it is a, a living, breathing snake. And then, meaning snake, not in the Western term of, like, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, if we're talking about knowledge and apples and snakes, and theory might be a snake in the Western sense, too. But I'm thinking a snake of a more cozy being, because it kind of slithers uh, and also saying slithers as a cozy words, slithers through history. And of course, it grows and it develops. Uh, and can, and at one point, it will meet its tail as the Ouroboros and kind of like start gnawing at its own beginning. Because then suddenly it's just like, well, I mean, Plato was an asshole and he was totally wrong. 
But of course, you're building upon Plato at the same time as you're trying to eat Plato in a way. Uh, and that is, of course, the symbol of the Albodosh, uh, that it's eating its own tail, also being silly enough not to understand that it's actually eating itself because it's grown so big. So I don't think that theory necessarily fails uh, unless it sets out to prove something uh, that then is later kind of like disapproved. Disapproved? I don't even actually think that's the right word. But I think in science, failure is more prevalent than in philosophy in many ways. And I do believe that you have a lot of theories and philosophies that are bonkers and are just kind of like so out there. It's just kind of like, what in all earths? This does not make sense. But making sense is not that it doesn't make sense. It's not really a failure per se if it gets out the fact or the fact or kind of the main part of the theory in a way. So maybe it can't fail. Um, it was a very long answer to the whole failure within theory, but I think it's also the same thing within within art. <clears throat> Perhaps. I'm unsure. <laughs> but it's, yeah, but can you, like, do you think that you can fail at thinking? Um, okay. Well, while Ruth <laughs> formulates her answer, I think that I, I, I certainly think that some philosophers uh, would feel like they, they may have failed at certain points. Um, and it can be really productive, right? Um, I remember uh, I, was, I, was, I was being told about this sort of semi-rivalry between Foucault and Jack Derrida from the late 60s going into the 70s. Uh, if I get my chronology right, it might even be the the 50s going into the 60s. But Foucault wrote uh, that famous book of his, Civilization, what's it called? Something in Madness. Civilization and Madness. Civilization and Madness, I get it. Yeah. And it's a book, his theory being that madness is a category invented that uh, to, to oppress, uh, you know, the, the people who are, you know, the society the deems mad and it's a means of control and uh madness is is uh, uh madness is a discourse meant to exclude the people who whom it deems mad right there's, a, there's a, that's the kind of logic that Foucault was working on to begin with mm. and do, do, uh, Derrida came at it from a totally different angle and said no uh, this is wrong because what Foucault does is he pre presupposes that Discourse, uh, sorry, madness as a concept can be pre-discursive, meaning that there needs to be a discourse about madness before somebody can say someone is mad or something is mad. And that led to Foucault reacting and perhaps becoming an even better philosopher, thinking about how discourse, power, knowledge, all these kind of things come together uh, in his later works. And it's built upon that critique of Derrida. And I think th there's something to that whereby there is a, there's an idea of philosophy, right? That it's something that progressively gets better and you chisel it down 
and eventually you can get to something more truthy. And then there's another idea of philosophy uh, where it's people, uh, some things are right and some things are wrong. And there's another idea of philosophy is something that is just one big conversation and people shouting over each other. And there's probably a billion other, a million, billion, billion, billion other ideas of what philosophy is. And I think you're totally right, uh, Marius, in this idea of what is the purpose of philosophy? Because I certainly think for artists, it's not to get like the right answer. Like if you're reading a book on aesthetics, it's not so that you can find the right answer about how to make the greatest artwork or whatever. It, it maybe helps you and gives you, as we come back to another word, tools to help one make artworks. You've just given a far more intellectual response to that question than I think I can ever uh, have hope to. Uh, one, oh, one, light, one light, one light, one, no, one, I, I was talking about Derrida, but now I'm going to go uh, somewhat lighthearted. Um, a few years ago, uh, right, rather, my work colleague, uh, uh, she, she's an artist and uh, she had a degree show and she was telling me about her, the degree show got a critique from someone and the critique she said, in her opinion, was quite, it was very critical towards her and her work. And the critique, to paraphrase, basically said that this artist doesn't know what she's doing. And I said, how do you feel? And I said, how did you feel about that critique? I mean, this is a, this is quite a scathing critique. I mean, this is so, 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 uh, I don't know, so, and uh, what, this is crazy critique. And she turned around to me and said, well, yeah, but he was right. You know, I didn't really know what I was doing. And I think there there's something quite nice about that, the idea that the critic can actually be um, perceptive enough to understand when something has failed uh, in that regard. But then it's also maybe quite nice to know that just because one thing is maybe, I don't know, like it didn't, it didn't quite work, that that something has failed that it doesn't really like it's all part of it in one's practice there's going to be ups and downs and highs and lows and blah 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 and things work sometimes things don't and sometimes you yourself as the artist don't know I mean, I think what it's, it's, a, yeah. it's maybe a slight diversion or like we're now off on a tangent from the thinking about theoretical failure but I think in that particular anecdote, I think maybe what's actually interesting in that, by knowing the person and knowing the critic and knowing the work, is that I don't think the artwork itself, I think the artwork was quite self-contained. And I think the artwork knew fine what it was doing, but maybe she didn't know. And I think uh, that those are two separate things. That you can have, like, art can be autonomous uh, of the intentions of the artist and in the same way i guess a philosophy or whatever it could be something succeeds in spite of the artist uh yeah sometimes in spite but not necessarily in spite of the artist or of the the creator or the writer philosopher there is something strange about well yeah i guess success and failure I think I actually just lost my train of thought again. I'm sorry, it seemed to be happening quite a lot with me lately. There are a lot of like interesting ideas.
interesting ideas being born and then obviously dying inside my head. Do, do the ideas come to you in English or do they come to you in Norwegian and then you have to translate them or how does it how does it work? That's curious. I don't think it has a language in a way for <laughs> yeah, me. Like a ball. Yeah it's just kind of like it's just they just kind of like, uh, I don't know. I I think I've been asked that question before and also kind of pondered that question. But for me, thinking and ideas, they don't come in, they don't come in language. They come as something, well, even more abstract than language, perhaps. Um, and I, but I do believe that everything we do is an act of translation. I do think translations can fail, though. Uh, but that kind of like is the fault of language and people more than it is thought itself. Uh, but everything we do, I think, in one of my one of my other spiels or elevator pitch, I do think that I said that all my work is an act of translation, uh, and I do think that we all translate from thought to words, from word to object, from object and to perhaps failure. Uh, but then I think maybe kind of like the translation fails, but I don't think either the artwork or the words failed in themselves. Uh, but there is something of that bridging that like, well, does the artwork fail if it if the artist doesn't know what it what uh, it does? No, the artwork doesn't fail because it exists as you say, can it exist autonomously? Yes, of course it can. Will it bring with it whatever the artist wanted? No, but that doesn't kind of like constitute then failure in a way. But I think that the artist or the maker can feel the sense of failure in a way. Mm. And that I think is a completely different thing than failure. Well, do I believe in failure? Perhaps. But I don't believe in the idea of failure as standing opposite success or accomplishment uh, because there are too many unknowns there to actually constitute something and i mean of course if you're talking about purely kind of like if you build a house and the house just fall down you kind of you failed at building a house <laughs> but i mean you you did a success of making a whole pile of firewood. So, I mean, that's great. Uh, and, <laughs> and that could be, I mean, it's a silly kind of like thing to say, 
but it's also kind of like how you perceive what you are doing. Uh, and I think within art, the kind of like the objective is not always clear. And I think that within theory, uh, a lot of theory concerning like ontological, metaphysical things about being, how we are supposed to understand system and etc. The objective in and of itself is so unclear that the failure in itself becomes a very kind of uncertain. I don't know if you know if you failed. I mean, the art critic obviously knows if somebody failed. Uh, <laughs> but then, then again, it's the perspective. It's just like, I feel that this failed because of ABC. But then again, are you supplanting something, a measurement on top of something to say that it failed? Mm. So, yeah, sorry. No, I'm just thinking that there seems to be like a necessary adaptation in failure to make it not a failure to to uh uh yeah to to switch it from being a pile of rubble and uh no house into firewood you have to adapt you have to or like yeah Foucault there has to be an adaptation of your theory and a rethinking and a retooling yeah <laughs> or for the for the snake to build on Plato and <laughs> finally start chewing Plato there yeah <laughs> Uh, for that failure to not be, I guess, a, a true failure or a, um, we really need better words. Where is <laughs> like the true tr failure? Yeah, I guess like that failure to, or like the incapacity to adapt is maybe like if a scientist with it within science, I guess failure can be like this incredibly positive thing where you're constantly yeah. maybe proving things uh, or constantly failing to prove your hypothesis. But in doing so, you're still creating knowledge. You're still building that house or you're still building on mm. that knowledge. That snake is still slithering away. And except if as a scientist, you just consistently are doing the same experiment, expecting different results without falling into that uh, annoying. But are we doing the same thing as with art? <clears throat> are we just kind of like... <laughs> yeah, but then is that is that even possible in art? Because in art, if you're doing the same thing over and over again and not adapting, then... That actually could be, quite, you know, like exceptionally interesting. And there's like oh, yeah. artists that have built their entire careers over doing like exactly the same thing over and over and over again, and then finding. Yeah. Uh, but then I'm also thinking awesome. about like if you have species failure or like an incapacity to adapt, species die, and mm. so maybe these failures, yeah, maybe exist at more like an industrial or species, you know, like further up the food chain for you know like more systemic mm. or structural. Yeah. Uh sorry. <laughs> I had I had one anecdote because I think it's funny you started talking about uh, uh houses uh, because in one of our last interviews we we interviewed uh, an artist who used to be an architect and when she was applying to do her MA MFA they said, "Oh, architect, you're not going to you're not going to last very long. The architects <laughs> don't last very long here." And I wonder if there's something about the the ambiguity of art. Because for me, yeah, to assess whether a piece of architecture succeeds or, or, or fails, yes, you, one can delve into the aesthetic realm or whatever. But fundamentally, it, it's a it's an unambiguous failure if the building collapses. Uh, unambiguous, right? Um, whereas in art, even things that are complete failures can be 
uh, can maybe have some redeeming qualities, and the, the you can say, okay, that's that's something. There's something building up here. I remember I did an exhibition once, and I exhibited a piece of uh, paper uh, that I'd made, handmade paper. It was very very large, um, but I made it in a warehouse, and it was very very cold, so it didn't really dry in time for the opening. But I thought, okay, fuck it. It's pretty much dry. I'll stick it to the wall just five minutes before the opening. And I got it on the wall and was like, great, it's staying. And as we were opening the door to the public, it fell down and collapsed and smashed into a million pieces on the floor. And I was obviously quite devastated. And then someone came up to me, uh, my friend, and said, oh, no, I think it's actually much better like that than it's on the floor. It's actually, you know, it gives the work a, a bigger, a greater meaning, et cetera, et cetera. I was like, it's like fuck you! I worked so hard, stressed over this, trying to get this dry, this all day, stressing myself out, and go, clearly going through emotional turmoil. That it's, you know, this grand opening, and this artwork has fallen off the wall and smashed. And you're saying it's better that it's smashed. Fuck you! <laughs> you know. So, but I, I still think that, uh, except from that one example where my my friend was completely wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, st- I still think I still think you, you can you can talk about interesting failures and you can talk about failures that are quite interesting. There's, I, I've maybe mentioned this before, but Mark Kermode, the the film critic, he has this thing where he says, "Oh, I'd rather see I'd rather see a filmmaker try and make something new and different and fail rather than just watch somebody trying to play it safe." And I do feel a lot of the time when I go see art, I feel uh, if I see somebody trying to do something that I know for them, particularly in the context of their practice, is quite ambitious, whether it be playing with a new material, mm. uh, trying out uh, like uh, a, a, new, a new scale, a different scale, working in public space, particularly if I, if I know the artist's practice relatively well. I'm really generous in terms of trying to assess it because it feels like they're doing something right. They're they're trying to they're trying to push their yeah. practice forward in, in whatever way. So even if the art is not great at the end, I still give it give it a you know I still give it more time than I might otherwise. Should but um, yeah, but I mean just the idea of great art is also funny in a way. I mean, it's uh, for me, I kind of like, I mean, but also for me, I think success is also a very funny word because it's like, uh, are you successful? Is it great? To interrupt, uh, Marius, you actually started making a very, what what could have been a very, very intelligent point. And and then we kind of cut you off or I cut you off. But it was, you talked about failure. What's the best way to put it? The idea of, of not seeing failure and success. Because naturally, one would see success as the opposite of failure. But I believe you had a train yeah. of thought that I interrupted, where you were maybe thinking that failure is not necessarily the opposite of success. And I don't know, is there an opposite to failure? Is it, does that does well, that make sense as a question? Yeah, well, I think that, like, I don't think it would be opposite. I think, like, the opposite of failure, then the most appropriate thing would be to say, not fail. Or not failure. It would kind of just be a negation of failure in a way. Uh, but I think that the kind of like these parameters, I mean, also pro- probably colored, unfortunately, a bit of this post-humanist idea that I've been uh, 
reading today, you see Donna Haraway, she has some points there going on, going on and on. So even though I don't agree with her, I still think that some of the thoughts, uh, which it maybe is me failing at proving her wrong, but at the same time then succeeding in expanding my own thoughts. No, but I think that, uh, I think that, well, I mean, it's the same thing as today Andersson when he says that the opposite of good is not evil, but it's passivity. And then he kind of like twists our world upside down because he says that, well, it's kind of like the people doing the evil, that is a deed. But then he says like, but the opposite is kind of this passivity. It is standing next to evil being done and doing nothing. That is where the true kind of like opposite of good comes into play. Uh, And I think it's kind of like, that's the same thing that I think about failure it's also perhaps if a scientist doesn't explore his failures or her failure or its fa- failure, then it might actually have failed because then you gain nothing from your failure um, because that is kind of what you do when you test something. And I think also that like, well, for the architect, for example, if the house falls down, uh, well, what what if it falls down? You leave it there. Mushroom starts to grow there, and you create an ecosystem that enables kind of like different species to cohabitate, uh, and the species near extinction can actually adapt quite well in it. Uh, that would be what we call a lucky accident. But then the house failed in a way, but. Then we could also kind of like, if I was going to be the annoying theorist that I usually (laughs) am, uh, then I could say, but like, well, I mean, a house is nothing less than a shelter. So if this pile of wood is sheltering these species of mushrooms, then indeed it is a successful house. Was it the intended house? No. But does something have to end up as what it is intended to be, to be then not a failure. But as long as it kind of misses the mark, that being by one million meters or two centimeters, I mean, is it then just a failure? Or is it then kind of the potentiality released in that failure that actually makes it the thing that it could be and is supposed to be? And perhaps it's what artists are continuously I don't know. Maybe that's also why I kind of like don't think I changed my opinion very often, except being very opinionated. Uh, That is something that never changes. Uh, But I do also believe that also changing tools, changing material, changing medium, I also open myself up for failure uh, because I do not know. So it becomes a continuous experiment. And for me, that is kind of like the exciting part of it, because then I can also not only challenge what I can do with my hands and my tools, but I also can challenge what I think. So in that way, too, we end up where I started in this intermingledness of theory and visual art practice and everything, uh, that they don't become failure. They just become a new ground of doing. I mean... I mean, this was one of the first questions I have. We have on our, you know, question sheet for you, uh, Marius, and here we are, uh, an hour into the into the 
into our conversation um, because I was quite curious about why you or uh, how uh, this this multimedia practice you have and just wondering where it starts because I know you were you, you you came from photography and it seems like you almost have done things that are connected to dare I say it please do not be offended but it, a little bit like land art uh, at times for example um and certainly uh, you you your practice takes takes on lots of different shapes and hues and and colors and stuff and obviously it's an extension maybe of your personality which is somebody uh, who's very curious and moving and flitting around between different uh different different areas of, of interest um but just uh, maybe you could expand a little bit on that and what why certain materials or maybe give us a little bit of a history and and how you 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 come uh, to work with so many different media mm, yeah i mean it's uh, uh, i do also i do love land art it has something incredibly amazing to wear that i'm like i just love it uh historically and uh, actually doing it um but i think that um my plan was never to become, well, if I am an artist, that is also, of course, the question can be raised. Um, but I don't think I ever planned or intended uh, to become an artist. It was never, well, I mean, this is going to sound kind of like silly and kind of like very privileged of me. I never had this big dream of becoming an artist. <clears throat> Uh, I believe, but I also believe I was a child with and child and a youth with no particular goals uh, as such, uh, uh, which is probably very worrying for parents, but it's going to be fine most of the time. No, but I think that also the reason why I fluctuate between so many things is also because within this field i have come to a place where i do not have to sit still i don't have to decide as such uh i can use because i think that i can easily feel trapped uh within my questioning if i could not reach out and grab something new and of course this could be seen as one of two ways it could be seen as oh you didn't find the answer there you failed not uh and then you kind of like reached for something else to try to figure it out there but i mean like it's just that you have this accessibility to all to all these modalities to all these different kind of uh ways of thinking ways of doing all these different strategies are there at your fingertips uh and when you kind of touch them as a novice uh something incredibly weird happens where you also reset your brain uh, both thematically and kind of like in how you ask you ask the question and how you choose to attempt to answer them. Uh, so I think that's kind of how I keep this alive, that like I don't really necessarily seek an answer, but I am seeking ways of talking, saying, and both both failing at communicating and then the exhilarating 
thing of being able to communicate through that failing at communicating. And that became very difficult, but I think that the whole idea is this, yeah, this freedom. I'm sorry, I don't know if I answered that question correctly, to be quite honest. Uh, <laughs> it became a larger, a larger idea, but yeah. But I think that I, I, to be on the outside, I think that like I would, for me to be on the outside, I think I would see my own artistic practice as quite confusing. Uh, and I think it is. And I think also that I, when I first then started studying art, I kind of got all these ideas about what an artist was supposed to be and what you were supposed to do. But then I kind of just gave up because I wasn't able to do that. I was just like, I just have to keep it confusing. I have to be that one million people within one person to be able to kind of like reach for that thing that I don't really know what is. No, I was just going to say it's a very difficult position to hold yourself in. Like that, uh, to be willing to sit in that uncertainty or that confusion, which is maybe like, I think maybe... Uh, quite necessary aspect of uh yeah of being an artist is becoming okay with that but it's not a easy road have you found ways of coping with that or is it just uh giving into into chaos maybe like somebody who saw my exhibitions were like well i mean i was quite surprised because the exhibitions are so tidy and on point and you're not and i was just like <laughs> well that's i think that's a compliment i choose to take that as a compliment and it was and it was because uh, they become very scaled down and i think that i think i've just accepted it in a way because it is also with this multi-layered practice that I have, uh, and these, and within also my visual practice being multi-layered or multi-medium based, uh, that is something I just, it's just an acceptance of it. And it becomes part of my practice. It becomes kind of like this, it's what feeds kind of the creative input and output for me. Uh, that being said, it's not the easiest thing to communicate outwards and for people to meet. But of course, I'm, I, I believe that I am in many ways very challenging. But at the same time, I also have this openness because of this multilayeredness that I'm always kind of like, there's always an open door within everything I make. There is kind of this entry that anyone can enter at any level 
that being kind of like the subjective, personal, intimate level, the very kind of like theoretical level, or kind of just the purely material level, because people operate differently and they have different things that they connect to. And kind of like creating this within my art allows people to come in and take part of some of my questioning. Uh, that's not being said that they all get the same answer. If they get five different answer, that is so correct. That is absolutely correct. If you have five different answers, that's the best day. Because that's also some of the point, because as in theory, this is just, it's an opportunity to reflect and to expand on your own. It is not the answer given uh, at the end of the road. This pilgrimage will keep going. Not being interested in answers is maybe actually the important aspect of not seeing failure as being failure. Mm. Or you can only fail if you're interested in an answer or the goal, ultimately. But if you're maybe open to a very different sort of process, it... uh. Yeah, the the answer becomes irrelevant as does, and and therefore the yeah. Now I'm rambling. <laughs> no, but I think that like I think that like I, but I think also that's kind of like the you're also bad now. I do think the internet is going to work outside. I kind of wanted a cigarette, so you're going going to come with me on a little trip. <laughs> um, so you get to see the whole shebang. No, but I think like that's also one of the. Oh, this is going to be your noise cancelling, yeah. I, I also have, have a, a I, I also have a reverb remover. Oh God, such big words for sound! Oh, my God, no, but I think that's kind of also part of the genius of your project because it kind of like it seems like kind of uh, the easiest, not the easiest, but it seems like everyone's just like oh, we're doing something about failure and what is failure and what means failure in art. And everyone's just like, okay, well, yeah, of course, that's easy, you fuck up. And it's just like, but then when you start talking about it, it becomes incredibly complex. And it becomes kind of like trying to define also something very kind of like basic. You're trying to get kind of to these metaphysical kind of like ground ideas of why you do what you do and even just saying that well this artwork is done now and it's just like well how do you know well i just know it's just well how can you know that it's done has it ended up saying what you wanted it to say did it look like you wanted it to look the internet does not work outside (laughs) (laughs) come to the light I will come into the light. Oh, oh good God. So, so Ruth had an observation. Yeah. Uh, she, you said because you distinguish between f- failure and the sense of failure. Yeah, which I think is maybe an interesting thing when we're talking. Like, I think you're, before you cut out, you were talking about how we, um, failure seems like a very basic uh, topic. And, it's uh, uh, oh gosh, sorry, the thoughts dropped out of my head. Yeah, that it's um, 
Yeah, it's, it's very foundational in how we talk about it and think about it, but it's like because of that very, very blurry, and as soon as you start trying to pick it apart, you start to see that complexity. But that distinguish, yeah. uh, distinction between the sense of failure and failure itself, or the, like an action with an outcome and an emotional response to something, I think is very uh, important to how we actually talk and think about failure. Because I think that emotional response is is nothing to do necessarily with the actual failure or, you know, like the, the incapacity to reach a goal. But again, maybe that comes from somewhere else. But it also, I think, is the reason that we get into such uh, why it's such a complicated thing to talk about because it feels like we can't separate that emotional response to uh, from the our actions or how we act artistically or theoretically uh, ethically no but I think you're correct in that kind of like that it's yeah, but perhaps it is that I distinguish between them because I, well, maybe that's kind of like something I haven't, I love it when I use kind of all the time. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but that um, I distinguish quite clearly between the, because perhaps failure is only existent within a feeling, which is then, of course, very subjective, I think in every kind of way. Uh, but at the same time, it is also something that... But maybe maybe it's only we that can manifest it, kind of like when your paper fell down. It's only you that can manifest the failure in a way. Or failure can only be manifested through the failed intention that you had. But then others see kind of that failure as being what was actually supposed I believe yeah no I think it's quite interesting and I think that's also why this project becomes interesting it's because yeah there is so many kind of essential ideas that are kind of laid bare and that we have to think about uh, which are kind of what I was talking about, these kind of like base ideas uh, and these kind of fundamental things that we take for granted uh, and we don't actually have to think about them. And I think also that, of course, society also creates these ideas of failure constantly. I think that's maybe where I was actually trying to get to is that sense of failure is so foundational or that that emotional response is so foundational to us that it it feels true uh so it's sort of beyond question or critique so maybe when we are talking about failure uh considering how we move in the world you're thinking actively about the actions and never thinking so much about the uh, or never questioning the feeling um, 
Whereas that feeling is maybe not founded in any sort of truth. It's, you know, completely societally or politically constructed sensation. Have you seen this? It's Documents ah. of Contemporary Art. So this one's about failure, uh, which uh, it's, it's quite, uh, it's, uh, and you have like Chris Burden talking about failure as success. Uh, maybe this is the theoretical part of me going into it, but it's, it's a lot of interviews, um, interviews with different artists, Tashita Dean, for example, on Bastian Adel, uh, Chris Burden on Pearl Harbor. Uh, a lot of like interesting thoughts. Mm. I hope that I think also I might have found a bill that I haven't paid, but that's <laughs> just we're we're leaving that in the book. Now that's a failure, financial failure. It's <clears throat> um, and also I liked it because uh, Ray Johnson on another throwaway gesture performance. Uh, where he kind of like at the Rhode Island School of Design, uh, he had a performance where he said, consisted of me trying to move a piano across the stage. And people kept coming up to ask if they could help. And I said, certainly not. I mean, the point is that I can't move this piano mm -hmm. and I'm struggling to move it. And it's obviously not going to get moved across the stage. And I'm putting out a great exertion of energy and I'm on a public platform. And you're all viewing me, which is the whole point of this thing, I said. Uh, I said, you figure it out. So it's kind of like all these kind of... And I think that a lot of the artists uh, that are interviewed in this book also kind of like see this. I think it has a shift in it where failure becomes the by effect and failure becomes the actual object, mm -hmm. uh, objective of the artwork. A lot having to do with performances and things that interact with other things. Uh, I don't think reflecting or thinking about it, perhaps not that many kind of like actual objects are talked about as failure. And that is perhaps then a difference. Uh, because I think it's harder to talk about objectively trying to fail uh within an object that you create than it is in a performance where the whole objective is to fail at performing something uh and then i think they are also exploiting this communal feeling we can have of failure when you see someone like trying to do something and you have that feeling it's just like oh this is really not going well this person mm -hmm. is just like really kind of like face planting at trying to do this that be singing, that be whatever. Uh, that face planting is quite brutal to watch, and it mm -hmm. becomes a societal uh, commentary in many ways. Uh, as Ray Johnson, when he's saying, like, the whole point is that I'm certainly not going to be able to move this piano. That's the whole point of mm. this. Uh, yeah. And then it kind of shifts how you think about the artwork in and of itself. Because it fails and it succeeds. But that's yeah. also because of his framing. Yeah, an intention. Hmm. Uh, yeah, but then, yeah, you maybe... It's interesting to think of having like a private and a public in regards to failure. 
or that you can have different uh, audiences to failure. You could have like an internal audience and a <clears throat> a different scaling, and also that that communitarian, uh, the community response, that like group cringe, mm. is a very particular sensation elicited. That feeling of either collective failure, or other, f- yeah. Bonding through someone else's failure. As I know, you have you you you're losing energy. Um, <laughs> what would what would what would Donna Haraway say about failure? And then, secondly, is the reason you hate Donna Haraway so much is that I know you went on exchange to America to Portland, <laughs> and that sounds the exact kind of place where they would make you read Donna Haraway. <laughs> Is that why you hate Donna Haraway? Well, I, I had to read Donna Haraway. I read a whole Cyborg Manifesto. Uh, I just still, I get the idea of the cyborg. I just really don't get it. Well, I mean, it's actually, it's quite funny because I think that a lot of the things that we're talking about also kind of reflects them to mm. not particularly her, but mm-hmm. like this post-humanist way of mm-hmm. thinking, uh, this post-structural way of thinking, because the whole point of the Cyborg Manifesto and then her uh, newer book of, of uh, Companion Species uh, is this kind of like that we're kind of breaking this mold of seeing, uh, of understanding the whole world from ourself. But both the cyborg and this companion species become a way of disrupting them uh, history, politics, and trying to kind of like see what different kind of ways we can be living and organize society to make it a better one. So I think for her, uh, failure would also probably not really exist in a way, because it would also be this societal structure uh, where you can say that you fail at certain things, then meaning not reaching the set standards of where we're supposed to be. But in this dehumanized or post-human world, in this cyborg or companion species world, these kind of goals would not actually exist, but they would be in a constant flux. Then going into Deleuze and his idea of becoming more than being, that us existing is this constant movement and this constant development. And within this kind of like then, let's call it a paradigm because that's always a fun word to use. Uh, Also one I've used in an elevator pitch, (laughs) unfortunately. Uh, Within that paradigm, uh, I would say that failure is necessary because it also is something that creates movement. Uh, Perhaps the perfect, what we see as the other part, uh, success and the perfect are actually stagnant and doesn't actually give room for improvement mm. or doesn't give room for doing anything else. Yeah. The utopian in, uh, in this, uh, yeah, in the, in the most awful sense, <laughs> the idea of the utopia as the stasis or the heat death of the universe, the point of no, no movement. Yeah, I mean, mm. uh, the moon landing was a success, and look what we got from it. Absolutely. Teflon. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, like, 
Do you need Teflon? <laughs> well, it's carcinogenic, so <laughs> but ideally. I, I don't think I can go back to things sticking to my pan. I just can't. I can't go back to that dark age. You know what? I think that's the problem because I use like cast iron pans because mm. I love them and I'm obviously also 80 years old. They're going to last an eternity. Uh, we were all farmers back then, and to sell a joke for you there. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I think also this is a structure that we are so kind of like violently opposed to something sticking to the pan. It is <laughs> something that should not happen because if it sticks to the pan, talking about failure, then it's ruined. But like when you use a cast iron, of course, it sticks a little bit. But it also kind of like when you scrape it off, it's fine. But it, it depends what you're trying to achieve, I suppose, because you, you kind of, I mean. Yeah, like a nice charred Yeah, sometimes you want, you want something there so that you can deglaze. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, so, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Potato, potato, tomato. Yeah, but uh, I think that's it. It's, uh, I think maybe you can tell a lot about someone's philosophy of failure based on what sort of pans they have. <laughs> And that's how we should uh, run this podcast from now on. Actually, yeah. That's the first question. What yep. pan do you <laughs> Yeah, Maybe that's a great way for us to wrap up the podcast, though. I was yeah. just going to say thank you very much, Marius Moldvar, for joining us from your studio. Um, it's been a delightful conversation. Thank you very much, too. It's been, uh, yeah, it's been a delightful conversation. And uh, much more complex than I started out thinking it would be, which is always correct. <laughs> we here at Failure Understanding Care and Kunst Podcast Towers would like to thank Kulturrode, the Norwegian Arts Council, for their financial support, who have made this podcast project possible. The music in this podcast was made by Jack's Broken Head, using errors, failed takes and glitches from our recordings. We would also like to thank Nicholas Horner at the Tromso Academy of Art, who kindly allowed us to use the editing suite at the Art Academy. Just like to say a big thank you to Marius Moldvar, our guest on this podcast, and a big thank you to Jack's Broken Head, uh, who's been very difficult to work with, uh, a massive ego uh, just really really difficult and I don't recommend working with Jack and Broken Head at all